This episode is brought to you by the Metasearch Institute. What happens when patients' cases become too complex to solve in a typical 30-minute visit? Well, you've all had those super thick, super deep patient histories nobody's looked at in a long time and gone back through. Well, I'll tell you what happens is those patients bounce around from doc to doc without getting any answers or making any progress. These patients are trapped and lost in a maze. Well, Metasearch is here for those doctors and for those patients. Their motto is, we solve the unsolvable. Their process is rather simple. Dr. Trent Talbot, the founder, assigns a team of medical detectives, typically three MDs and one PhD, to each case. They research the latest breakthroughs and clinical trials, and they elicit the opinions of 10 to 15 world-leading experts per case. They purposefully seek out experts who will come at each case from a different perspective, the Bainesian method. Altogether, they will put in over 250 MD hours for every case. That means 500 times the amount of brain power that a typical doctor can afford to offer. Nobody can do what Metasearch does. Call 832-968-6667. That's 832-968-6667 to be in touch. You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. C. diff, how bad are these hospital-acquired infections? We don't know, and there's two reasons why. Because there's two questions behind the questions. How many infections? How many fatalities are there? Does this start to sound familiar? Yes. This is much worse than COVID because it's like a secret pandemic, and it's been going on for decades. How many infections? Let's start with that question. The number used by my previous guest, who was on last week, Morris Miller, CEO of Zenex Corporation, now, they're a robot disinfection for hospitals and other facilities. He said about 3,000 a day. That's the number of infections. And I did the math for you. You can save the calculation. It's pushing 1.1 million people annually. Now, here's the first problem with the first question. How many infections is the coding problem? There are tons of codes for sepsis. Sepsis codes are basically a coding dance. It's mostly medical. Uh, that you're going to get this these infections from, but there's some animals acquired infections as well. But these hospital acquired infections are a dance, and the facilities with high infection rates get dinged financially. Of course, they can always upcode around it, so no problem there, and they do it all the time. But still, they get dinged financially. Besides the coding dance, there's a much more pervasive and scary problem. All infections are self-reported. So imagine going to a casino but it's on the seedy side of town. And they're known for their loose slots that pay out very nicely. But what you don't know is the slots pay out by a state regulation all the same across the state, across the city. But if they don't pay nicely or pay their amount that they're supposed to, let's say they pay way below, what happens to them? They can lose their license. What happens to hospitals who 
don't report the infections rate or surgery centers that don't report the infection rate accurately, what are their consequences of cheating? Like the casino, can they lose their license? No, they're not gonna lose their license. This is the third leading cause of death we're talking about for HAI. So this isn't losing a little bit of money in your pocketbook. We're talking about lifetime bankruptcy potential, financial distress, but really a lifetime of great pain um, and a time of really the highest stress you'll find in your life. This is kind of like getting cancer. But let's go right to the heart of the matter. If there's no true policing of hospitals infection rates and surgery center infection rates, it's just a game of hide and go seek. You can go on a website called LeapFrog, and it's a site that'll tell us what the infection rates are, but getting the rates again is a self-reported shtick. So there's no stick in a big carrot. Well, we have routine screenings for MRSA in Northern Europe, so we know that works. Guess what they do? They give a nose swab. It's just starting to sound familiar again. Yeah, the nose swab will tell you whether you're a carrier of MRSA, for example. 5% of us are, it's in our nose, it's on our skin. You're not gonna get everybody sick around you, but you could. So the second question, the first question was infection rate. The second question is the mortality rate. Again, this all sounds very familiar. There are 300 daily that die from these hospital-acquired infections, according again to Morris Miller, the CEO of Xenix. But other sources say as many as 220,000 or 400,000, so it might be double or quadruple Morris's number of 300 a day. So the issue here is, are the coroner's rules the same across the country? No, they're not even the same across the state. They're not even the same county to county, for example. So the reporting the cause of death is quite different and the rules matter because it's a giant patchwork, it's a giant checkerboard. So again, we don't really know what the death causes are when it's a MRSA or C. diff or any other kind of infection it's caused at the hospital. I know my mother-in-law died of an infection from a simple surgery, and maybe you know somebody you know did, and you don't even know it. So we just don't know. Today's guest does know that, and she's trying to make sure that we all know that. Janine Thomas nearly died from ankle surgery, and her immune system has been compromised and has never been the same. She is currently the founder and director of the MRSA Survivors Network. Janine, I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you for having me. This is an important topic, and let's start with this. I want to hear your story, but let's remember this was done to you. This, like, you didn't get a vote in this. Correct. Yes, I uh, was infected during ankle surgery. So, um, you know, you think you're in, you're safe. You know that it's the OR is clean. You never think something like this can happen to you. Now, you didn't go to some seedy hospital. You went to a well-known hospital in your hometown. Yes, in Chicago. Yeah, very well-known hospital. And um, you, you just never think that, that something third world could happen to you in a major city in, in, in uh, the U.S. Tell us your story. What happened and how long has it taken you to recover and have you fully recovered? Uh, no, I've not, I will never fully recover. I broke my ankle. I slipped on um, black ice. I had to have hardware put in, and I was infected during surgery with contaminated surgical instruments. That's what they believe, because it went right into my broken bones, my bone marrow, and I got an uh, osteomyelitis, and it was MRSA. And then um, it was never diagnosed. It came back positive, but the surgeon never saw, didn't realize that it was MRSA. So I went into septic shock and multiple organ failure. And were you read your last rites? In other words, were you on the death's door a few times? Yeah, yes, I was, um, and it happened, you know, at two in the morning. So, you know, it was uh, the night nurses saved me. They 
you know, they paged the doctor. And luckily, there was only one antibiotic at the point. At point, this was 2000. It was vancomycin, and so, you know, I was very. I had the out of body experience, all of that, and luckily, um, you know, the uh, antibiotic worked, and uh, I was in the hospital for a month, and they were still going to amputate my leg. And uh, it was just uh, horrific, horrific. Then I got C. diff after that. And um, I still, you know, had a huge hole. I needed a bone graft, a muscle graft, and a skin graft. But because of the infection, I couldn't have it. So my ankle's never been the same. And uh, my immune system, from all the an- cocktail of antibiotics I took, has never been the same. So the antibiotics, it's kind of like cancer. The radiation might kill you, and this almost killed you as well. The antibiotics were so tough on your body. Right. I didn't know, I didn't know what was going to kill me, the antibiotics or the infection. And it moved into my sinuses, so I was sick for five years. Are there any things other than antibiotics that are on the horizon? Because I know our, our medicine cabinet nationally and globally is getting emptied by the lack of people that are investing in antibiotics. Right. Well, there's phage therapy, which has been around... Uh, it's used in Europe. It's, it's from uh, Georgia, Russia, and that's a um, you know bacteriophage, and um, that is proven to, you know for wounds to be very good. And so there, but it was just never you know wasn't able to be approved by the FDA because it's a natural product. So there's a lot of politics in that. But now I see centers now are starting to do research in it, and um, you know before you'd have to you know fly to Russia or to, to get this type of therapy. So there are things out there. So what, what year did this happen, Janine? Uh, December of 2000. Okay, so this is 20 years ago we're talking about. Yes, yes, yes. Well, sadly, mm-hmm. happy 20th anniversary. Yeah, it's almost 20 years, right. Yeah, I've been living with this. I've, you know, it's a, it's uh, your comfort. I've, I've had cancer, I had COVID this year. Your immune system just cannot fight off um, bacteria and, uh, Viruses. I mean, you're co- you're compromised. You know, it's permanent. There's nothing that can bring your system back up. So these um these pathogens were messing with the wrong woman because you are not a woman to be trifled with. What did you do after you recovered from this in terms of uh, fighting back? Not physically or well, I was never even told I had MRSA. Finally, my doctor said, "Well, you had a stat. You had a staph infection." Because how could I almost die? You know, and I was a a-level tennis player and, um, you know, very healthy. And I just was like, how could I just break my ankle and nearly, and nearly die? And so I started looking around. I started, uh, you know, trying to, and there was nothing on the internet about this. And then my girlfriend's uh, mother, she, you know, she told me her mother died of, of MRSA, MRSA. And uh, I said, what's that? I didn't even know that that's what I had. And so then I started really, you know, researching things. And seeing that this was not even a reportable disease by the state, I said, how can this happen? And then I was hearing stories from friends and family that I knew seven other people who had this. And I said, well, this is an epidemic and nobody's talking about it. So it's an invisible epidemic because it's still today not reported by CDC, is it? Exactly. Right. I mean, the CDC has their rates. They have a reporting system, but it's still, you know, it's, as you said, it's coded in different ways so that the true numbers, the amount of infections is not, you know, there's no transparency. We don't know the true magnitude of the ongoing epidemic. So it's it's fact that we don't know the fatality rate, nor do we know the infection rate like we do, say, for example, COVID. Right. In 2011, I passed legislation in Illinois that mandated 
that MRSA be put on death certificates if it's a determining factor or cause of death. And Washington State is the other one that has that legislation. But who can tell if they're doing that or not? I mean, you can mandate, but it's you don't know. You know, there's no transparency. You will never know if that's happening or not. Mm-hmm. So, so my mom, my mother-in-law, never got to know Dot Dorothy because she uh, died at a young, relatively young age from routine surgery. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Well, I, I mean. So I'm with you on this story, and I also understand what a wonderful woman she was and how blessed I would be had I got to know her. But, but here's, here's the rub of it. They didn't mess, they should not have messed with Janine Thomas, should they? Well, my, <laughs> well, I said, I have said that, you know, they infected the wrong person when they infected me. And my family says, no, they infected the right person when they infected you because you were going to do something about it. So you got mad, and what happened, Janine? I, I contacted my state representative and my state senator, and I told them my story, and they're like, what? Oh, my gosh. You know, and um, so they, you know, contacted the Department of Health uh, director, and, um, you know, so they were like, well, we've got to do something about this. And so that started the legislation in Illinois in 2006. Uh, we introduced, introduced universal screening and reporting, public reporting. We were the first in the country. And um, I went around to 40 different districts and talked personally to state reps and state senators and told them they didn't, nobody knew this disease. They, we don't know what you're talking about. And I got kicked out of a couple of offices because they said I was lying and, um, you know, about it. And then all of a sudden, it, we, they, you know, the legislation was there and we were the first in the country to pass it and to, you know, to implement it. And then other states followed. And now, um, you know, 50% of hospitals are screening and reporting 30 states or, you know, there's public reporting, but it was in my legislature said we would have done something sooner if we would have known about it, but it was a secret and silent killer. Nobody was talking about it. Nobody was tracking it. And the hospitals knew that this was going on. The doctors knew this was going on. But we are at COVID right now at about 220,000, which is exactly how many we think the minimum is from hospital acquired infection. So, COVID is actually going to pass. We're going to have a vaccine or it's going to peter out because it does die. It basically lessens itself to the mean, if you will. It becomes less and less. And so that's why we don't have vaccines for most of the potential pandemics we've had before. We only have one for swine flu. So this will, this too will pass, but MRSA is only getting worse. It's a bacteria. It's not a virus. Can you speak to that? Well, you know, right. It's a bacteria. And the thing is, that nobody has been able to get a vaccine because it's transient. Staph, and it's a staph aureus. And, you know, staph is a cockroach of bacteria. It's going to find a way to survive. It was one of the first bacteria species on this planet. So it's virulent. It finds a way to mutate. So when they have been working, companies have been working on vaccines and they find, you know, it's in second or third phase trial, it doesn't work. So there, So I don't think there's ever going to be really a um, vaccine for MRSA. So that's why prevention is key because you're not going to have a, a vaccine to, you know, for, for this. Let's, let's talk about C. diff too. I know you know a lot about that. C. diff is a fungi. So it's a spore that can sit on a surface for seven to nine years and not die. Right. And most of what we have C. diff in our gut and in our intestines and it, we live with it. Like we live with staph. 30% of us have staph on our skin and we live with it. Most of 5%. Most people are asymptomatic, never have a problem. 
But if you've had a lot of antibiotics, especially, you know, you've had MRSA, then you're, it changes the flora your, um, in your gut, and then, you know, these activates, you know, uh, C. diff is activated. And uh, you, you can die from, many people die from C. diff and, and with MRSA. And, uh, or they just get it um, in the hospital and they get C. diff. So these are things that are, you know, brought on by the overuse of antibiotics. So this is why we're told when you get a cut, whether it's an abrasion when you're shaving or if you get a cut that's for real, you are supposed to wash the surface really nicely because you could have MRSA or some other bad boy on your skin that could infect you and, and cause much more severe damage. And the problem with in, in 85% of um, MRSA infections, you know, come from hospitals. So the problem is it's gone on for decades and all they said, oh, well, if somebody gets an infection, we'll just give them antibiotics. And so that created this antimicrobial resistance and they're continually getting new antibiotics, which if you just continue to use them, there'll be nothing. There'll be nothing to treat this. There's another problem. A lot of primary care physicians like to listen to this show. And if you're a PCP and you're prescribing antibiotics when somebody has flu-like symptoms, unless you've swabbed and you know, or you've tested and you've known with blood tests, whether, whether the flu comes from a bacteria or a virus or fungal, if, if you don't know what kind of flu it is and you're just bombing them with everything under the sun, that's, that's only helping these viruses mutate in their body and develop anti-resistance, basically, right? Well, over 50, 50 to 60% of um, skin infections are MRSA staff. So, uh, but you have to get a swab and you have to find out, you know, what is the pathogen? Because otherwise you're just throwing antibiotics at it and you're creating, and that's happened to me. Um, and uh, so you get another, you, you know, you don't, you get resistant to antibiotics that you may need. So let's talk about the perverse incentives of hospitals. We've talked in the opening about the self-reporting and about the coding issues. Let's talk about the financials. What, how much does a hospital make on you, Janine Thomas, if you check in for a day with MRSA? Um, it, it depends on your insurance, whether you, uh, you know, I, th I think on your insurance, but I, I think just a regular little infection can be $30,000, uh, if not more. I mean, it just depends if you need other surgeries, if you... You know, it it it, ha it can go all the way up to millions of dollars. So in an ER, you can spend eight thousand dollars with a blink of an eye. You can spend you know eighty thousand dollars in ten days, and no problem whatsoever. And the antibiotics are some of the antibiotics are extremely expensive, the new ones, and uh, so uh, and they should be used as last resort because um, you you know you want to keep those. So there, you know, most hospitals have good, um, you know. Um, stewardship programs, antibiotic stewardship programs. So, and that's, that's key too. What was your total bill for like top to bottom for that? Was it a year of hell, two years of hell? How much hell did you have? Well, I had eight surgeries. <laughs> so, eight surgeries. How much was your total I had eight bill? Surgeries. All eight surgeries. I can't even tell you what, because I raised holy hell and they wiped it all out. So I don't even okay. know. But it, it's very feasible. It could have been, you know, not six figures, but seven figures in the millions. Yes, yes, because I had to have eight surgeries. Um, it, you know, it was off and on, and you know, it, for a year. You know, to so save what my is, life. What is my legal recourse if I get an ankle surgery in a hospital tomorrow? Not in Chicago, but here in Texas. And what is my legal recourse to go after the company that gave me the infection because they have poor uh, cleanliness? Right. Well, it's lapse. It's lapse in infection control. 
is what it is. Uh, it's pretty much zero because you will not find an attorney that will take that because it is micro, it's a microbe and you can't prove that it wasn't on your skin when you came in, even though your swabs, you know, with chlorhexidine and, you know, benadine and everything, it's just that you cannot prove that. And that's the problem is there's no recourse for victims. And um, so you're infected and um, there's only been some cases where it happened in the, in the, um, with maternity, with, people, with women having uh, babies, and there were like four or five that got infected right at the same time. So there were, you know, so they proved that there was something wrong there, you know, that there was um, lapse in infection control. But you have no recourse, and nobody's going to take your case and, because it's too, it's too hard to prove. And, of course, they're and not going to report to the press. for families. Yeah, they're not going to self-report to the press because they don't want to get an uh, inspection as a dirty hospital. They don't want to get a report or a publicity of that. They're not going to. Uh, right, and they don't the settle. They know they, yeah, and they don't settle. And so, you know, you really have no recourse. They infect you. You're a complete victim. You are a complete victim. You're infected. You have no recourse. It can destroy you financially. You'll never be able to work again. You're hard to get um, disability, but how can you live on that? I mean, it it does wreak havoc in your life. I mean, and it's and then for many people, they have chronic they have a chronic infection, so they're they're walking around in an IV pool. Here we are learning. It's it's just it's just a shocking. This is a shocking interview today for most people listening to this. But the thing that's most shocking for me is what you told me yesterday, which is that. Not only is this prevalent in hospitals, it's in prevalent in nursing homes, it's universal in the good hospitals, the bad hospitals, the, the famous ones, the not famous ones. This is a universal problem that is really across the board. So here's my question. Is it possible that now Xenex has sold literally thousands more robots? I mean, whatever they're selling a month, they might be selling it every day now. Um, so the fact that these robots are now disinfecting rooms, disinfecting surgical centers, that and that we, with COVID, we are now washing our hands more. Not only we are, but obviously the hospital employees are. Is this all a good thing potentially for MRSA and for C. diff infections is that the, the procedures are getting tighter? Yes, definitely. I, I am hopeful that this will, after COVID hopefully disappears, um, you know, to an extent that this they will continue to spend the money and, you know, resources to disinfect. And to continue with, you know, um, all of the, uh, you know, hand hygiene and all of the, you know, masks and everything that they didn't do before. They really, they didn't wash their hands between patients. And there was just lapses in infection control. There was not a will to, there was just complacency. There wasn't a will to, to really be tight and everything. And, and that, um, the patients pay for that. But it's still, there's not enough screening. That is key. You know, active detection and isolation is is key to getting this under control too. It's a it's a you know a, it's an approach. You know, it's a bundled approach with this. You know, you have to do all those things. So the bundle looks like number one, when you are treating the surgical tools, there should be protocols number one that everybody follows, and that they're they're supervised when they're getting trained on how they should clean these exactly. surgical tools, yes. right? Yes. Okay. Because ninety percent of HA healthcare acquired MRSA is surgical site, so there's something definitely wrong that you're getting all of these infections in an OR. So you know, pre, you know, and um, 
and afterwards. So there, there is a huge, huge problem there. And by the way, we're, talking about OR, we're not talking about serious surgery. We're talking about labor and delivery. The vast majority of babies are born today with an incision. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, it yeah. is um, the colonization rate for, for infants. I mean, they, they don't have the immune system. Yeah. So it's so dangerous to, uh, you know, that everyone definitely, you know, needs to be screened and swabbed and okay. so all risk patients. The same kind of nose swab that you get for COVID. And then you right. make sure the surgical tools are cleaned properly. These are not things that every hospital administrator doesn't know. The hand washing has to be somehow, if not monitored, self-reported that, you know, I did wash my hands several times during this surgery. Well, they need to continue training. They, you know, they're neat. They, they'll do a hand hygiene training and then they won't do it for six months, you know, to a year. It should be every three months and there should be monitoring and there should be retraining because it's easy to get them back into bad, bad habits because they say, oh, we're rushed. We're, you know, I don't have time, but that pathogen could be on there and that can kill somebody. So is, is MRSA and C. diff treated universally? I know that we learned, um, like I had a friend that got COVID uh, just a month ago in Oklahoma City, and at Deaconess, they said, had you come in three months earlier, you would have died because your oxygenation levels dropped so low that we would have put you on a ventilator, and we know what happens to people on ventilators. Is MRSA and C. diff treated universally the same way so that we know how to bomb it, or is it, um, you know, everybody's still experimenting, you know, all these decades later? I think the problem is, is you don't have uh, enough infectious disease specialists, especially in small hospitals. So they have to call someone in. The surgeon tries to treat it. <laughs> and he's not an infectious disease specialist. So that is the problem. And he's giving out antibiotics. He's doing treatment. And the, the patient doesn't know that they need an ID specialist. So you have, a, you know, this is a huge problem that it's not being treated in, you know, serious cases, not being treated many times by not calling, calling an ID consult in. Because they obviously they want to keep the revenue for themselves. That's what I see. Let's talk about the Survivors Network. How are you financed and what are your efforts today? I know you've been on NPR and national press, and I know the CDC is tired of your name, tired of you going to meetings. They're not inviting you anymore because they're sick of your complaining. Um, how are you getting the word out about this other than shows like this? Um, you know, well, we have Facebook, a website, you know, I do press releases. Um, it is that we just have a big, you know, following on Facebook. It is, it's, I'm the only one with the crisis hotline. And so people find that because they're not getting help from anybody. The CDC is not going to give you help if you call in it. And so it's been really word of mouth that um, we're, we're helping patients, you know, and giving them the information. You know, we try to even find them a doctor sometimes or where they should go to the best place in their, in their state or town that we think is the best hospital. I mean, it's just trying, it's very basic. Uh, I, I have self-funded for many, many years. We do have some sponsors for Wilmer today. We get donations, but re really, you know, we, we are very thin and, um, you know, I'm dedicated to this because this is something that's really needed. I mean, this is, you know, this is so important because, um, you know, this is what people need to know is the, is the facts of Well, let's, of let's also agree that Superman is not going to come from the CDC. The Center for Disease Control essentially um, 
let's let's put it nicely and say that they're not interested in solutions. What, what that, I will say is, excuse me, what I will say is they've turned their back on this disease. They completely have turned their back on this disease. And they just like threw up their hands. Well, you know, it's out of control now. We can't do anything about it. And it's just endemic. And this is, and it's always been their, their, their you know, that's been their statement. And um, not publicly, but it just, you know, you, you've controlled other diseases. Why did you let this one go epidemic? Yeah, the I CDC mean, has really fallen. Their reputation has fallen hard in the last nine months from what they Well, the truth is coming them. out. I think a lot of the, you know, the truth of certain things are have been coming out and it's just disappointing that um you know that 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 so many people have to be needless pain have needless pain and suffering and their lives cut short families destroyed because they they haven't wanted to get serious about controlling this Mm -hmm. well um you know it's interesting to me that um like we have conspiracy theorists that listen to this show and we are not talking conspiracy theory when we say this MRSA is great for pharma big pharma and it's great for big hospital systems isn't it financially well it's um it, it's been very good to them yes i mean there's uh you know it's an ongoing epidemic and it's never going away it's not like covid or a virus this is here to stay we just have to get it and we'll never get rid of it completely but we can get it down to Netherlands has less than one percent prevalence of, you know, and so it's almost non-existent. So we can do that, but it has to be everybody together working hard to do that to get down, you know, zero tolerance. Yes. So let's so let's agree that the largest funding lobby in Washington and across every state capital is the healthcare industry, and you're not going to get anybody that's going to buck them. Um, because they can actually, uh, they can buy tech, Wall Street, big defense. They can buy all of the big four behind them um, with their budget alone. So you're not going to get any superheroes on the political side who are going to espouse the merciless epidemic and solve it because big healthcare likes the epidemic. Let's call it what it is. Yeah, it, it is an ongoing epidemic. I mean, it, it is, uh, this is the hardest work I've ever done. I mean, to try to raise awareness, educate, and just get zero help from health departments, state health departments, federal um, agencies. I mean, there is nothing for MRSA victims. I mean, HIV, you, you were able to get housing, you were able to get free, free, you know, free, you know, there would be food, there would be, um, you know, treatment, drugs, there's nothing, nothing for these, for, for, for victims, for MRSA victims. And you are truly a victim because that happened to you and it's, and it's a never event. It's a preventable event and there's nothing for them. Thing more says by 2050 that we're going to have 10 million deaths a year in America alone if we don't get a hold of this epidemic. Well, yes, it's antimicrobial resistance, AMR. I mean, it is, we've been, you know, raising the alarm. I've been a patient safety champion with the World Health Organization since 2008, and I've been raising the alarm. And um, so I've been working with them on trying to get a uh, system for, you know, reporting MRSA uh, for all the countries. I mean, we know how many HIV and AIDS cases there are, you know, around the globe. We, We have no idea how many MRSA colonizations or MRSA infections there are. To close out the show properly, and this, this, you can talk about this forever, but 
The proper way to do this and that what they're doing in Northern Europe, including the Netherlands, is they're doing a PCR nose swab for everybody pre-surgery to make sure that they're, they're eligible to even get into surgery. Is that correct? Um, yes, a lot of them are doing universal screening. They're screening everybody. Okay. So screening everybody, and then you get those five percent that are carriers, and then you can't, you won't get them, you won't let them in until they're treated. And can you get rid of MRSA with a proper treatment before the surgery? Oh, sure. It's a five-day. That's why you want to do it. You know, at least ten days before your surgery, because you need a five-day Nupiracin ointment in your nose and decolonize your skin, so you can be ready to go before surgery. Now you're you're clean, you're 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 checked in, and you're good to go, and you're not going to be causing a problem for the system or for others that are after you. Well, and, and the if you're if you're colonized with MRSA going into surgery, you have a ten to twelve fold greater chance of getting an infection. So that's why you do not want to be colonized before surgery. I mean, that's 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 the risk. You want to lower your risk of infection. And just like we know about supercarriers and COVID, we can have, you can be a supercarrier because they are so tightly scheduled in these surgery centers that they don't have time to clean. The housekeeping does not have time to clean the rooms or put a Xenex robot in there to bathe the room and xenon light. You literally have back-to-back -back surgeries taking, you know, and you can have an infection. Right. right. It's a pro well, ORs are profit, big profit centers. So that's the problem is that, yeah, the turnover rate is, is, um, is fast. I think that's one of the problems with, with you know, getting infected during you know surgery. It's there, there's contamination there. Um, well, so Janine, thank you for being on the show. It's just such a delight to talk to somebody who cares so much and is fighting the battle like a warrior, like you do. And I, I got to tell you, if I were a pandemic, I wouldn't want to get in your body because you will mess with me, man. You will, you will. I, I don't have a chance with you. Well, I, I've survived for a reason you know, to do something about this. That's how I look at it. So, you know, I will continue to, you know, continue to raise the alarm. And, um, you know, that's that's all I can do. How can people uh, reach you if they want to find you, Janine? Um, they can call us. Uh, you know, they, it's info at mercesurvivors.org. Our phone number is 815-710-0526. Uh, Facebook they get um, Mercer Survivors Network, and um, so they can contact us if if they need help. You know, we we give help to people because they're not getting it from anybody. There's no other service. Um, and if you could fly a banner over America with one message, what would that message be? Okay, I think that we have lessons learned. A lot of lessons have been learned from COVID, and then now we realize that hospital client infections are serious there are so many deaths and that we really need to work on this now also it's time people are aware of of infections now of being infected and how they can be infected and it's all related so we really have to hold you know healthcare facilities their feet to the fire so folks again cancer and heart are number two and number one as killers in america but we also know Hospital-acquired infections are number three, and nobody is talking about it. It's not going to show up on any list nationally. It's not going to show up on any um, global lists. And so, sadly, this is a quiet epidemic that's going to last way beyond COVID-19, and we're not doing anything about it, very little about it. So thank you, Janine, for your time. We'll get you back on and get a report, hopefully in about a year, and see where things are. And maybe this crisis will have uh, lessened the rate and solve some of these big um habit problems that hospitals are having with their protocols. 
Well, thank you for having me today. Thank you. So welcome to Just a Hospital Minute. We are adding these segments for one minute at the end of every show to tell you some of the games that hospitals play. Pods is short for physician-owned distributorships. They will, for example, put a cage on your spine to ensure your vertebrae are aligned, and surgeons will often use a no-name brand, an off-brand, because the docs that work in the gray zone will invoice three to six times with their own distribution system. <clears throat> so an item that's supposed to be 6,000 will be billed at 18,000. So the surgeon says, I'm gonna use my implants, I'm gonna use my cages, and the hospitals look the other way. So they ignore the fair market value, which is OIG approved. So this is just another hospital minute. Thanks again to our sponsor, the MediSearch Institute. I wanna read you a note a CEO friend of mine sent me who used them for a rare childhood disease her daughter had. Dr. Talbot's research was thorough. He provided clear paths of treatment and he gave me access to the best physicians. I'm so grateful for his work. That's the MediSearch Institute. Thank you for listening. You wanna shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.